Welcome to the Development Podcast, a podcast jam-packed with fantastic advice on professional development from interviews with renowned authors, speakers, industry professionals, and influencers. I'm your host, Martin Manosalvas. Thanks again for tuning in. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining in. Today, I'm so excited to have the author, speaker, and founder of Applied Curiosity Lab, Becky Saltzman, here to discuss Applied Curiosity. Uh, To understand the role of curiosity in the lives of remarkable people, Becky spent two decades studying and collaborating with behavioral scientists, embedding herself into a variety of industries and cultures, and conducting interviews around the world. These findings and adventures led to her to found the Applied Curiosity Lab and create the Applied Curiosity training modules. She speaks and writes about curiosity as a tool for business insights and elegant competitive advantages, as well as a lens for adventure. Additionally, Becky is a LinkedIn learning instructor, a host of Applied Curiosity Lab podcast, and the author of Living Curiosity, How to Use Curiosity to Be Remarkable and Do Good Stuff. Uh, So Becky, thank you again so much for joining my podcast. I'm so excited to discuss this with you. Uh, How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you, Martin, for having me on. I think you're awesome and what you're doing is great, (laughs) and I'm happy to be a part of it. Thank you so much, and, and absolutely. Uh, so can you start us off with sharing a bit about your career journey and, and your experience applying curiosity in the field? Absolutely. I I say that I grew up in a virtual cabinet of curiosities because I come from a long line of auctioneers. And my playgrounds were old abandoned warehouses, dusty sawmills, and bankrupt office buildings. And What I learned in those dusty warehouses of my youth, I later confirmed in the dusty halls of academia as a graduate student in uh, behavioral science. And that became kind of a lifelong quest for everything that I've done that is fundamentally described by the pursuit of questions that can't be answered over answers that can't be questioned. Although I do need to give full credit to uh, Nobel Prize winning quantum physicist, um, Richard Feynman for that brilliant kind of summary missive for what drives my what drives my life and career. That's fantastic. And thank you for sharing a little bit about that. Uh, So through some of that research that you found and, you know, through previous studies that you've conducted, uh, what have you found to be the distinction and benefits between the different types of curiosity? Well, breaking down in terms of the, t- I have found that there are two types of curiosity and that when we talk about those types separately, it's easier to understand the role of curiosity in our lives. So there is the free range curiosity, which is the pursuit of knowledge for knowledge, the sake of knowledge. I think of that more like basic science. So studying the molecular structure of cells to better understand the molecular structure of cells. Whereas applied curiosity is not so much identifying and understanding problems, but using curiosity to solve specific problems or to achieve specific objectives. Kind of like uh, applied science, studying the molecular structure of cells to come up with better vaccine protocols. So those are the two types of curiosity. And then within that applied curiosity, 
there seem to be emerging from the literature kind of four distinct ways we default to using curiosity. And those became the framework for what became the curiosity archetypes in my work specifically. Excellent. So kind of focusing on the applied curiosity section, um, and actually a training course that you published on LinkedIn, uh, you stated, being curious is a basic human trait, exploring novelty, seeking new information and experiences. These are all things that come from, you know, just come natural to us. But applied curiosity is not about just that. It's about using curiosity as a strategic tool for seeking things that others miss, you know, making wiser decisions and increasing uh, influence for getting more of what we want. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious, can you expand more on that? Um, you know, what are practical ways for us to utilize applied curiosity as a strategic tool? Excellent. In addition to understanding how we default to using curiosity, our archetypes, also there are a couple of other really helpful tools. The first is this concept of elevating curiosity ahead of criticism, judgment, fear, and complacency, and having an actual trigger to do that, not so that we are less judgmental so much as we are more accurate in our judgments. So that's kind of number one. Number two is utilizing what George Lowenstein identified as an information gap, but expanding that to two additional information gaps. So George Lowenstein, George Lowenstein uh, researcher Carnegie Mellon describes the information gap between what we want to know and what we do know. And applied curiosity, we found two additional information gaps that often uh, remain unfilled. So we focus kind of on how to identify those information gaps. And then the thir a third very specific tool is to use uh, a this peak curiosity curve to strategically manage familiarity, uh, to manage and manipulate or manipulate meaning like a dial, not like a maniacal manipulation, but mm -hmm. to use that and dial up and down familiarity to manage curiosity for whatever strategic outcome you're looking for. And that goes for managing our own curiosity, but also managing the curiosity of people to whom we're trying to influence or sell. And it's fundamental way that we do that is to use MVQs, most valuable questions in a very strategic way. So those are kind of maybe four distinct ways of using curiosity as an applied tool versus you know, thinking about the gap between what we want to know and what we do and what we do know, and maybe spending three hours on the internet just kind of surfing around, which mm -hmm. is also a wonderful thing, but probably more um, defined by free range curiosity. Right. So when it comes to, you know, managing our own curiosity and and to a certain extent, using that to influence others, uh, what are common barriers that can prevent us um, from being that, you know, uh, applying that curiosity? And what are some things that can easily kill curiosity? Great question. They're really thinking about them in two chunks. One, the first chunk are the fear-based curiosity killers, uh, an extreme discomfort with being wrong, an intense fear of failure, and overvaluing certainty over inquiry. And those are really the two, the three 
fear-based. And the second set of curiosity killers that you see in organizations are really culture or leadership-based. The first is these sacred structures where you're not supposed to cross technical barriers or even hierarchical barriers. So where senior managers never talk to or interact with, um, you know, entry-level people, et cetera, except for as a, as a kind of exercise in delegation. And the second thing that is related to that is mistrust, which works in both directions and it's often contagious. So leaders don't trust their team members and team members don't trust their leaders. And this idea that challenging authority is something that we don't like to see is usually a symptom of mistrust. And then the last kind of cultural leadership-based curiosity killer is an over-reliance on short-term key performance indicators or key KPIs, really short-term KPIs that prevent us from seeing around the corner or questioning what might be happening so that it causes us to be blindsided. I use the example of Toys R Us. When the in the early days of online sales, Toys R Us had those curiosity killers. They were they had this intense fear of failure after the first year when they couldn't make couldn't uh, get their holiday orders out on time and they incurred a lot of angry customers and a government fine. And that led them the following year into the arms of Amazon because they wanted they had such a fear of failure that they wanted to make sure that they didn't repeat that failure. And that was really the beginning of the end for you know a 65-year-old company with 800 stores in the United States and 800 stores abroad as Amazon became the go-to uh, the go-to seller for toys purchased online. So that's just an example of how this all of these these curiosity killers can kind of work together to to squash curiosity and ultimately um, result in the exact kind of failure you're afraid of in the first place. Right. So kind of going into the first section, you mentioned fear based. So, you know, extreme fear of failure. How, do you have any tips on, you know, preventing ourselves from being fully devoted to that and, and you know, how to fight that off? Because I think that's so easy to constantly focus on, um, you know, the fear of failure. Uh, so what are some tips to be able to overcome that? The biggest tip to overcome that is to recognize the outcome bias. And this is where a lot of the applied curiosity really resides at this intersection of applied curiosity and critical thinking for our, for my work, because that's really my specific work is where those two things intersect. And the best way, the simplest way to overcome a fear of failure is to understand that between every decision and every outcome is a tremendous amount of randomness and luck, both good and bad. And if we evaluate our decisions based on outcome alone, we're going to be misled. Like if I blindfold myself and walk into the middle of traffic, and someone takes a video, but nothing happens. Cars swerve around me, and I and the vi- the video goes viral. And all of a sudden, I'm on the news, and I've got people wanting to, you know, whatever, talk, buy my. That doesn't mean that that was a good outcome with a bad decision process. So, good outcomes and bad outcomes can be deceiving places to look for lessons. Um, and if you just kind of swap where you look to the decision process, then the fear of failure is diminished because you recognize that there is such an element of randomness and luck in every outcome 
that uh, you start to really fix your decision process. You, you curiously look at your decision process and ultimately your fear of failure starts to dissipate. It's so good. And, and it's such a great point, you know, is being able to also understand that there's a good and bad side to it as well. Um, and there's a sense of luck that comes with it too. Yes. Uh, so in a Harvard Business article on why curiosity matters, Francesca Gino stated, to encourage curiosity, leaders should always teach employees how to ask good questions and help people make the transition from giving good answers to asking the right questions. Uh, so I'm curious what your thoughts are on that quote and what are some ways to ask better and more effective questions? Okay, so I'll say something uh, controversial. I, I agree with that quote entirely. Mm -hmm. I think one of the misleading missives is that there are no bad questions. Now, we know that there are better questions and we know that there are worse questions. So whether you call them bad or worse, they exist. We've all mm -hmm. been someplace where we thought that person asked that question for impressive management, not for knowledge attainment, mm -hmm. you know, and that is fine if that's your strategic um, plan. But, um, the other, so in addition to the fact that, okay, straight out, there are some bad questions or some questions that are less good than others, that means that it's something that we can all get better at. So that's number one. And to identify not only the, to, to identify not only the goals for your questions, but to try to increase the quality of your questions. And then the second thing is to try to increase the quality assortment of the questions you ask. And for that, we use these question buckets so you can analyze analyze your questions. And then the second kind of myth bust that I would say that is helpful here is to realize that more curiosity is not always a good thing. It's really good. And I think you bring up a great point. I mean, there have been times where I have certainly asked questions and maybe not having the right intention or the motivation behind it, but rather, you know, just given the moment and giving the um, severity of that where I'm at, you know, I may ask a question or two um, in, in in the wrong manner. So so I think it's really good that you bring that up is just increase the quality of how you ask questions. Right. And then the other thing that, you know, it has to be addressed if you really want to in, embrace a culture of curiosity is you've got to remove the eggshell component because if people are walking on eggshells, and being chastised for asking the wrong question or asking the wrong, the right question of the wrong person, you are going to end up having an inadvertent culture of <laughs> culture of curiosity killer. So, whereas there are no bad questions, sometimes you have to ask them and be trained mm. to fix them, because if you never ask them at all because you're afraid of asking that becomes this fear of failure. And that means that it's the fear of failing to ask a good question, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Certainly does. Yeah. So if I heard you correct too, um, you, you mentioned too much curiosity may not always be the best. And uh, so to expand on that, in an article from the Entrepreneur Magazine, Aaron Dynan discussed the dangers of curiosity and stated, while being curious and loving to learn new things are necessary quality for successful entrepreneurs, those same qualities present an enormous obstacle. 
Curious entrepreneurs quickly discover that the world is full of new things to learn. And because of this, entrepreneurs get easily distracted. So I'm, I'm curious if you can expand more on you know, that quote and if too much curiosity can be dangerous. Absolutely. There's two ways of looking at curi- too much curiosity. In some ways, it can just not be effective. And you know this if you've ever been on the verge of buying a product. You have made a considerable decision. You've weighed all the options. The salesperson's bringing you exactly what you want, like a new car, something big, something that you've really looked at and considered, or a new computer, or you know, even a, you know, a new a new uh, smartphone. And you're looking at all that, and you finally made the decision. You're saying I do to the product. You're standing by the one that you're going to marry. And then the salesperson says, you know, I do have this one other product I'd like to tell you about. And they pique your curiosity right at the wrong time and they mess up their sale. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like saying to your significant other under the altar, you know, I I have a question for you. Did I ever tell you about, you know, that's great for a first date. But when you are closing the sale, when the decision must be made, when you have identified that the decision is consequential and irreversible enough that all of this information has gotten into it and you're making the decision, that is not the time for more curiosity. Now, once the decision is made and you have an outcome and you can go back and look at your decision process, sure. So the key with applied curiosity, unlike free range curiosity, is to know when more curiosity is a good thing and when it isn't. And we use the peak curiosity curve uh, to help organizations figure that out and help people figure that out. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's important to know, you know, when it is right enough or when it's too much. It's a good point. So I recently listened to an episode uh, from Kwame Christian's negotiation podcast where you stated Ideally, you do not start a negotiation with persuasion. You're starting with curiosity. Um, And so I'm curious if you can expand more on what you mean by that and that quote. Absolutely. So Socratic questioning is very different than debate or persuasion. And, you know, the, the art and science of persuasion is really well documented and brilliant. And I've got some great friends, Kwame in the space and and Brian Ahern and Bob Cialdini and you know a lot of people have really done some great work in the in the space of persuasion. The Socratic or curious inquiry is really how you get your ammunition for uh, applying the persuasive techniques later. So if you go in, let's say you're negotiating a job, and you are ready to negotiate three weeks of vacation and a very specific salary. But you never are curious about all the different ways and different things and different benefits like stock options or Mm -hmm. mentorship programs or a commitment to fast tracking your career or, you know, a payment for workshops that could advance or get new certifications that the company would pay for. You never are curious about exploring that because you already know what you're going after, and you're ready to apply the persuasive techniques to getting that, you might come out of that thinking to yourself, I did so well, I got my three weeks of vacation, I got my salary, and two months later you find 
your friend, you're sitting and having coffee with a friend who works there too, and you find out, well, wait, why did you get stock options? What do you mean they're paying for you to, you know, get your MBA or they're sending you to? So it's imperative to start any negotiation with curiosity so that you are not blindsided by thinking you had the best outcome because you started and were successful with your persuasion. Makes a lot of sense. Thank you for sharing and clarifying a bit on that. So how can organizations recruit for curiosity and encourage employees to be engaging in it? Well, first of all, uh, they have to have an understanding that there is a difference between having authority and being an authority. So if you have a culture where you cannot question the boss because they are the authority figure, this is how it's done. We've always done it this way. That the role that someone has is de determines their authority versus the knowledge or wisdom that they have, then you're probably not quite ready to be recruiting for curiosity. And let's face it, I mean, there may be some companies that want to have people who follow the rules. Maybe it's a highly regulated industry and they need you know, a group of people who follow the rules and don't question the rules. In that case, I guess the way you could consider infusing curiosity is to have some method or some defined time or some defined place where people could contribute ideas or data to the organization. But, you know, those companies, and those companies exist, but if you're going to be part of the a data culture, you have to be part of a culture of curiosity because you have to be, every employee has to know how to contribute, where to contribute, and to a certain extent, how to engage with data. And that really starts with making sure that there are no sacred structures where you cannot question the boss. Very good point. And it's important to understand that sort of difference uh, between who has that authority. Right. So as we conclude, I'm, um, I'm curious, what are, can you describe the role that curiosity plays in, in leadership? Absolutely. I think that, uh, first of all, <laughs> there may be a more fundamental and important role in followership. And mm -hmm. I know that that's kind of verboten, like people want to talk about leadership exclusively, but to be an elegant leader requires a certain competency in followership at every point in our career. And that means that being able to value questions and value busting your own assumptions at every level. So a leader who is such an expert that they are not comfortable questioning their own assumptions or questioning the assumptions of others and a follower who is so um, supercilious or so compliant that they don't question their own assumptions or question the assumptions of the boss in a way that is um, collaborative, that kind of thing can, when that shifts from not being something that is a focus, a leadership focus to all of a sudden shifting to that, like this fundamental shift where people can ask questions and 
learn to identify assumptions and challenge assumptions, then it becomes less of a traditional leader follower and more of this kind of collaborative growth culture. So I don't know if that mm-hmm. if that answers your question, but I think no, it's, fu- it's fundamental mm-hmm. to both followership and leadership. Absolutely. And I think it's it's really important to understand, you know, the role that, um, you know, being a follower plays. And I think you have a good point in that, you know, to be an elegant leader, you know, requires a sense of followership. So it's a really great point with that. Uh, so as we conclude, are there any final thoughts that, that you'd like to share around applied curiosity? What role do you think uh, applied curiosity has in your life versus free range curiosity? I mean, the biggest thing is, you know, when it, when it comes in with free range, that's more so our every, I would say, you know, different types of decision making. So every day, um, you know, thinking about other options, whereas applied curiosity would be more so how can this benefit from a strategic standpoint and like actually understanding, um, you know, more so the benefit behind that. I agree. So I, I think that's that's good because the final thought that I have, I was just kind of curious how you, you know you thought about that interviewing all these people. But the final thought that I have is that with our unprecedented access to information, we can search for and access pretty much anything. But mm. I don't know about you, but I've never gone on a Google. I've never gone on any search engine, Google, Bing, whatever, put in something and had it come out saying, hmm, I didn't know. I don't know. I've never no one's ever asked that before. So. We can search for and access everything except for what isn't there. And only curiosity inspires the questions that generate the answers we don't yet have access to. So without mm. curiosity, new answers will cease to exist. It's a really great point. Um, I, I didn't even think about that, but I think that's that's so true. Um, so I love that. Uh, well, Becky, thank you again so much for, for your time and Um, It's been a pleasure having you on my podcast, so I appreciate all your thoughts around this. Uh, Listeners, if you have any, you know, additional or follow-up questions, please feel free to contact us via LinkedIn. But with that, thank you everyone so much for listening and have a great day. Mm